Welcome. You have joined Paradigm Shifting and the Practice of Reworlding. And I want to preference the call by saying that there's something I want to share with you tonight that's very difficult to share in words. And part of what makes it so difficult to share in words is that it's actually too easy to share in words. And what I mean by that is I'm pretty good at explaining it. And I think most of you will feel like you understand it by the end. The challenge is that understanding the words alone won't give you access to the experience and the the danger of that kind of clear explanation that leads to intellectual understanding is that uh, it can make us feel satisfied that we understand something. Um, And if, if all I'm able to transmit to you is an understanding of what I'm going to speak about today, then then the greater opportunity of actually experiencing what I'm speaking about, you know, will be missed. And, and so I really want to do everything I can and to at least give you a glimmer of an experience of something that is so profound and so dramatically different than the way we have been taught to think. Uh, that even a glimpse of it can dramatically change your orientation, change your life. So before continuing, what I would uh, ask you to do is just sit sit with me for a few minutes. Not so much in meditation as really just in a clearing space. Because I would ask all of us to be as open as possible to the full transmission of what I want to share with you today. Which means, of course, it includes being open to the words and the understanding that I have prepared uh, for you. But, but more importantly, to be open to a shift that might occur between the words, around the words. So I want you to sit for just a minute or two and open yourself to the possibility that maybe you will Hear something that you've never heard before and experience something you've never experienced before. Or maybe you'll hear things that you've heard in different ways a thousand times before, but you'll hear it differently. And because of that, you'll experience it differently. So just sit and open yourself to the possibility of being touched by something in a way 
that you've never been touched by it before. So you're just relaxing everything that you know, all of your past spiritual experience and history, not that it's not valuable, but you're just setting it aside for the next 90 minutes. It will be there when this broadcast ends. It'll be waiting for you. But I'm asking you to Set it aside so that you're not filtering what you're hearing through the lens of what you already know. So that you will be open to hearing something very different. Wonderful. Thank you very much for opening yourself up to a new possibility in that way. And I wanted to take a minute right at the beginning of this broadcast just to explain a little bit in terms of a meta view of, of what I teach and how I teach it. Um, you know, why am I doing, I, I ask myself this periodically, what am I doing? Why am I teaching? What am I hoping to realize with all this effort that I'm making? And the simplest way that I would want to describe it to you is that I am attempting to gather a globally networked group of people and create the means and the mechanisms through which we can all engage together as a kind of self-awakening collective. You know, for, for 20 years, I lived in a, a communal situation, and I was one of the primary uh, holders of it for many years. And I've always believed, felt, and experienced that, that spiritual awakening, at least for some of us, wants to happen and needs to happen together. You know, our consciousness isn't separate. And so 
the the degree to which I'm able to awaken to new possibilities is linked to that same possibility and those people that I'm connected to. And by connecting people together who are mutually inspired to awaken, we create an updraft uh, that affects every individual. So, so that's what I'm, I'm interested in. I, I feel that gathering that type of self-awakening collective will be not only extremely valuable to all of the individuals that are a part of it, but also it will demonstrate possibilities for the future of the world. Now, that might not be every spiritual teacher's aim and aspiration, but it, it is what drives me. And so now I want to start the conversation about unworlding and reworlding. And to start, I think what I need to say is that when I'm speaking to you, I'm not speaking to the separate sense of self, you know, your personality, your ego, whoever it is that identifies with your name. Of course, I'm speaking to that partially, but really underneath, my goal is to speak to the awareness or the consciousness that shines through the separate sense of self and comes from a place beyond it. You know, I said at the beginning that I want to share something with you that's very hard to share in words. And I said, part of what makes it hard to share in words is that it's too easy to share in words. So here are the easy words that explain what it is I want to share. And that is simply that you are not limited by the skin-encased being that you've learned to identify with. The experience that you currently have of being yourself, of being Jeff, who was born on my birthday and has lived my life and has my history, of being whoever it is that has your name and was born on your birthday and lived your life and has your history. That is just a very, very small part of who and what you are. And it's by far not the most significant part. That experience of being the person who has your name The way you got that experience is that you were worlded. In other words, you were conditioned into a particular experience of the world. And when I say that, I don't mean that you were conditioned into an experience of the world out there. You know, this is, this is part of the conditioning that we have to let go of, is the idea, you know, we sort of equate the word world with the word planet. So when someone says... You know, I live in the world, we are very likely to, to think of it in terms of I live on the planet. But that's not really 
what the word world means. You know, when we talk about the world of jazz or the world of art, we're not talking about a planet. We're talking about everything that has to do with jazz or art. And so when I say world to you and I say you've been worlded, I mean everything about your current experience is the world, including your experience of yourself. The experience of the world comes with an experience of yourself. It's not that you're a self that then has an experience of the world. When you think about the world as something outside of you that you are in, you know, I live in the world and and the normal way that we think about it, you're definitely in dualistic consciousness because there's a you and there's a world and they're separate and they make contact. When you start to think about the world, not as a place or an environment that you exist in, but as your as the totality of your experience, including your experience of yourself, then you're leaving duality behind. Because suddenly there isn't a you in the world. The world is everything there is. The world is the totality of your experience. So when I speak about unworlding, what I'm speaking about is completely and utterly letting go of your experience, of your current interpretation of reality. You know, when you look around you right now, you'll see you are interpreting everything at multiple levels. You know, at the grossest level, you identify things with words. You know, I see a book in front of me. I see a computer in front of me, a telephone in front of me. Uh, I see a shelf. I see a desk. You know, these words are labels of interpretation. But, you know, below the level of words, we get more and more subtle levels of interpretation. So, for instance, if I were to ask you to just look at your sensations, it's quite likely that you might, if I asked you, for instance, what are, those, what are the raw sensations of this desk in front of me? It's quite likely you might say brown, it's, it's brown, You might say it's hard, it's smooth, but those are also interpretations. You know, there's more subtle interpretations, but if, you know, in the unworlding process, which is not different than the classic meditation uh, process, you're letting go of all layers of interpretation. The gross layers, like defining things as books and trees and cars, and the more subtle layers of defining things in terms of known characteristics. And when you get to the point where there's no interpretation whatsoever, then your experiencing, then your experience becomes unknown. It's not that there's no experience, but there's no experience you can identify. And as soon as you identify some aspect of your experience, then, you know, you're, you're back into an interpretation. And as soon as you interpret anything, it's like you recreate the entire world. So as soon as I grab one interpretation of one thing, well, that interpretation is relative to everything else in the world. And so you can't drop just one part of the world. You either drop the whole thing or none of it in the end. 
And so that's the, the unworlding process is the process of letting go of your entire world of interpreted experience and entering into the domain of pure awareness. You know, because earlier I said you are not limited by the skin encased being that you've been trained to identify with. What you are is pure consciousness. You know, we hear this all the time. It's not that hard to understand. But understanding it won't give you access to the reality of it. You know, I want you to just sit for a minute. You are pure consciousness. Every single thing that you're experiencing, the experience of your body, your hand, it's all an experience. It's all a worlded experience. And it can all change. You know, that's what excites me so much about spiritual pursuit is that reality itself can change. You know, we've been taught that reality is that which we cannot change, that which we cannot affect, that which we must be beholden to. You know, when, when someone says to you, well, just deal with reality, what they mean is deal with that which cannot change, which you cannot affect. And part of the miracle of spiritual awakening is you realize there is nothing that you can't affect, or at least maybe there's nothing you can't affect. But certainly your ability to generate change is more than profoundly greater than you've been taught. Because in an essential way, reality itself can shift. And so with that, I want us to enter into just an unworlding meditation in which I will give you gentle guidance in the process of letting go of all of your interpretations of reality. So first, just sit quietly and relax. When our intention is to go incredibly deeply into the mystery of being, the best starting place is to be relaxed. If we're not relaxed, it will be very difficult for us to get very far. Tension and nervous energy are not the best ground for awakening. Relaxed, receptive curiosity is a much, much, much better ground. And so just relax here. Allow your breathing to become regular and not forced in any way. 
as natural as possible so that you can more or less forget about it entirely. Allow it to become perfectly automatic. And then allow yourself to get more and more still. Not tensely holding yourself rigid, but instead just settling into stillness, settling, settling into restful, peaceful stillness. And I would suggest that you close your eyes And what I want you to look for is the place where you can rest your attention, which has no words to describe it. As soon as you recognize that you are aware of something, and you know what it is, gently allow your awareness to slip off the edge of the known into the space that can't be known. What you find is that all kinds of experiences arise in consciousness, thoughts, feelings, and we recognize them and know what they are. We know that this is a thought about awakening or a thought about something that happened yesterday. I know that this is a feeling of excitement or this is a feeling of boredom. As soon as your awareness is on something that you know, allow it to slip off into the unknown. You can imagine it a little bit like a cold Arctic ocean full of ice glaciers floating around. The glaciers are the known bits of experience, the thoughts, the feelings, the conclusions, the judgments that continuously arise. The water underneath is just the depths of the unknown, nothing identifiable. So when you find your awareness on a glacier, let it slip off the edge, slide right off the ice into the unknown, 
and then let it rest in the unknown. And of course, you'll find that your awareness slips back onto some other glacier, some other little bit of the known, and just let it slip off again into the ocean of the unknown, beyond the words, the thoughts, the feelings. You may find this easy, and you may find that you just naturally rest in the unknown. You may find it difficult. You may find it difficult to even find the edge, because every time you seem to slip off one thought, you seem to slip right onto another, or a feeling. Either way, just keep doing the best that you can. And when you do find yourself just not knowing, relax there. Not knowing has no bottom. It's an ocean without a bottom. You can sink and sink. Initially, at superficial levels of not knowing, you just don't know the content of your mind. You don't know what you're thinking or what you're feeling right now. But there's still a lot of unconscious knowing. But as you settle and sink into not knowing, as you go deeper into the unworlding process, you forget where you are. You forget what you're doing. You forget who you are. Until ultimately there's just awareness, pure awareness, aware of absolutely nothing. Give yourself a few minutes to keep sliding off the glaciers of the known into the ocean of the unknown. And then if you can, relax and sink more and more deeply into layers of unworlding.
If you start to feel an existential confusion arising, allow it to continue. Allow yourself to not know where you are, what you're doing, or who you are. So that there is just knowing and nothing to be known. This unworlding process brings us toward non-dual awareness, which is awareness without any idea of who is aware and without any idea of what we are aware of. It is pure awareness with no subject and no object. Allow yourself the luxury of not knowing anything at all. And so now, in the interest of time, mainly, I want to invite you to end the meditation exercise.
the unworlding process for the moment. In the context of having an extended period of time to go into that over and over again, you will sink more and more deeply. And what happens is you start to recognize how much of what you thought was real, real meaning separate from you, unaffected by you, you'll start to realize how much of that is really interpretation. It's really just a projection of ideas and beliefs that then become solidified into a conceptual experience of the world. And you'll start to feel the intensity of freedom that comes when you realize that so much more can change than you ever thought. Unworlding practices are really uh, my articulation of very classic spiritual teachings, classic meditation teachings that come from many traditions, East and West. The articulations may be different, but essentially the practice of letting go is the same. Of course, the articulation of the practice does affect your ability to access the practice, and it does affect what the result of the practice will be. But I'm making the point that really I'm articulating practices that have been around for a long time. I think the reworlding practice is a little, a little less traditional, maybe a little bit more unique. As I said, not every, every, not every spiritual teacher goes in that direction, but it's the direction that I'm very compelled by because I'm very compelled by enhancing the creative process, to taking the human capacity to create to its limits. And so to me, the ultimate creativity that we're capable of is reworlding which means essentially we start out worlded, which means we are neurologically conditioned to experience the world in a very particular way. And then we're taught that that's the way the world is, and then we believe that that's the way the world is. And because we believe that that's the way the world is, and because we're taught that, it becomes very different to experience the world any other way. And if you start to, it will feel... You know, it'll feel a little absurd. Now, of course, what's very interesting is that when you look at the way we are currently experiencing the world and the beliefs underneath it, they're also absurd. Absurd meaning not provable. So, for instance, just to, uh, to make the point, we live in a very materialistic society. And by that, I don't mean... Consumerist. I don't mean uh, materialistic in the sense that we want a lot of stuff, although we live in that society as well. But I mean materialistic more fundamentally, more foundationally, meaning that we believe that, that matter is kind of the basis of reality, that we live in a world of empty space filled with matter. And then we have developed a very powerful science based in this idea 
Now, what's completely fascinating is no one's actually ever seen matter. You know, you can measure characteristics and then you can assume that there's matter underneath, just like this tabletop that I mentioned before, I can see that it's brown, that it's smooth, that it blocks light, that, it, that my hand can't penetrate it. And I can take all those characteristics and then surmise that, that this is matter, that there's something called matter that this table is made of, and all of these characteristics are the characteristics of matter. Now, of course, when we get to uh, some of the experimentation of quantum physics, we start to find out that this matter is mostly completely empty space. 99.999% empty space when we start to shine subatomic particles that go right through it. We start to see that really pretty much they all go through except some very, very tiny amount that gets scattered. And then we surmise that, oh, those must be the little bits of matter. But it's quite possible that over time we'll start to discover that even those little bits of matter or what we imagine to be those little bits of matter aren't really there, that there will be other particles or other things that go right through it. So the foundational belief of our materialistic culture is that we live in a universe made of matter and matter is something that we, we can't see. We only infer its existence based on qualities that it exhibits. Now, it's been incredibly useful. Our modern science has, has given us access to all kinds of miraculous possibilities. So I'm not saying we should throw out the idea, but I'm saying that because a lot of what I'm about to share with you from a modern scientific point of view might sound absurd. That might tempt you to not want to give too much energy to exploring it. But I think the real possibilities of reworlding depend on us being willing to enter into the absurd together, to go places that are weird, and then see what happens. We can continue to use materialist perspectives wherever they're the most useful, but maybe we will have added something else to our repertoire if we have given ourselves the opportunity to experience something bizarre, something way out of the ordinary. Uh, I have a, an acquaintance named Timothy Morton. He's a professor at Rice University, and he's a big fan of the weird. And his feeling is essentially that um, you know, our planet is in such dire straits that we need to be willing to risk a little weirdness in terms of the ideas and the practices that we're willing to engage in. So here's the reworlding exercise that I wanted to introduce to you today. The assumption that I want to look at right now is the assumption of a universe of three-dimensional space. Our current paradigm has a very firm belief that we live in three-dimensional space. Now, of course, the leading edge of science doesn't actually believe that, but most of us are not living at the leading edge of science. We're living in science that's a few hundred years old, really. 
And for most things that you do in your life day to day, that, you know, two, 300 year old science is good enough. It's good enough to, to build a car. It's good enough to get down the street. It's good enough to do most of the things you do every day, at least at the gross material level. But that is the paradigm we live in. We live in a paradigm which sees a universe of three-dimensional space. And then we see ourselves as being a thing, an object that walks around in three-dimensional space. So we assume that when we're not looking at something, it still exists. I'm right now facing in one direction in the room that I'm in, and I'm I most naturally assume that the room behind me is still there. And when I turn, I see that it still is there. So I haven't lost it. Now, some of the conclusions of quantum physics would tell us that actually reality doesn't exist independent of the observer. Reality isn't just a three-dimensional expanse that's just sitting there, waiting for someone to come along and observe it. Reality comes into being as it's observed. Now, I'm not saying that that's a proven fact of science, but there are experiments that would lead to that conclusion, which are proven experiments that have been done for 100 years over and over and over and over again that would indicate exactly that. So this is not just, you know, made up, you know, something someone made up. It's not some kooky edge of science. This is established scientific experimentation that's at least a century old, fully repeatable time after time. So what I want you to do for a reworlding experiment is we're going to take that you know, to an absurd edge. I want you to just, with your eyes open, assume that only what you can see exists. And that when you turn your head to the left, everything that you were seeing on the right just disappears. This is a little bit how a video game works. You know, if you are in a video game like World of Warcraft, where there's this huge world uh, that you can take your, your player character around in, that huge world isn't being maintained by the computer all the time. It doesn't render the whole world and then wait for you to step through it. It just renders the part you need, just the part that you're experiencing. So imagine that that's how this universe works. It's not rendering the entire universe all the time, waiting for you to walk around in it. It's just rendering what you need. It's rendering what you're experiencing. And as as your experience moves away, it lets that part of the program disappear and it renders what you're now seeing. So do that. Move your head from side to side. 
Imagining that nothing behind you exists. Imagining that nothing on the other side of this wall exists. You know, there's a wall in front of me. All that actually exists is the surface of the wall because that's the part I can see, that's the part I can touch, that's the part I'm experiencing. Everything else that I'm imagining being on the other side, you know, the apartment next door, and then the world beyond the building, all of that is just in my imagination. And then I assume that it's there, but I actually have no evidence that it exists. I only have direct evidence of the things within my experience. And then I assume that the rest of the world that I know of is still there. But do this experiment for a little while, just for the next minute or two. Only what you're experiencing exists. Everything else is just an idea that you are assuming persists even when you're not experiencing it. How does your experience of the world change when you're not just a thing in a world whose entire existence is there independent of you, but you live in a world that appears as you experience it, that appears right in front of you as you experience it. How does that change? How does it change how you relate to the world? When you are that deeply a part of the process that's creating it in every moment, feel into that. Let yourself go. I realize it will be difficult. I realize there will be a lot uh, of aspects of you that are complaining or might be complaining about the ludicrous nature of this investigation. And in terms of our current paradigm, our beliefs about how to know are designed to keep us from this kind of investigation. They're designed to keep us from investigating things that are outside of the parameters of the current paradigm because they're designed to protect the existence of the current paradigm. But you'll feel them as you engage in this exercise. You'll, you'll see that it's difficult to fully imagine. But if you can, at some point you can go, oh my God, I, I'm starting to see what a different world it is. When the only thing that exists is what I'm experiencing. There'll be a part of your mind that comes up with all the reasons why that couldn't be the case. And that's fine. The point of this exercise isn't to prove that this is the way it is. The point of this exercise is just to prove that the way we currently experience reality is only one way that it could be experienced. And ultimately, there's no way to know that that way is more true than another way.
It's just as unprovable. It only feels proven because we live in a paradigm of shared agreement that says it's proven. But when you look deeply, you realize it's not proven at all. So this is not an exercise to replace your current reality. It's an exercise to show you that there's an, there are different ways of experiencing reality. And if you are starting to get a sense of what reality feels like, when you only assume that what you're experiencing exists and that it only comes into into existence as you experience it. If you're starting to feel how that changes the world, changes your experience of yourself, because that means when you're not looking at yourself, you don't exist either. You know, I want you to imagine if you were doing this for a few hours, maybe you could even do it longer. Would you start to shift your neurology so that this became the habitual way that you saw the world. You see, we are habituated, conditioned into a certain experience of the world. So that's the experience that comes up by habit. We don't have to make any effort for that one. You know, the currently dominant paradigm is the dominant habit of our species, of our culture. How long would you have to practice an alternative view of reality before your neurology started to rewire according to it? When you start to see that that is a possibility, you start to see, oh my God, we can change our experience of reality. Our experience of reality is not fixed. And again, the goal is not to find some new reality and then adhere to it. You're just adhering to the next reality. Uh, I don't see as the goal. I see more as the goal relaxing adherence to any specific fixed idea of reality so that we're free. And then to see what happens when we are not so deeply embedded in any particular view of reality, and we're more free to move, what will happen then? How will the world change then? How will evolution occur when it's not limited to an evolution within a particular experience of reality, but now the experience of reality itself can start to evolve? So believe me, as you go through an exercise like this one, and you have you know, a few hours to do this both on your own, but also in discussion and in dialogue with others, you will start to feel this overwhelming, exhilarating, thrilling, and a little scary sense that the reality you thought was fixed and solid and immovable is not. And then go back into the meditation and go more deeply into the unworlding process so we gain access to deeper and deeper and deeper levels of assumption about reality. And then we go back into the reworlding process. And through that cycling back and forth, you will start to have insights about who you really are, the way the world really works at these profound levels.
that can change everything. So one question uh, that came in said, unworlding is experienced here, the way that I was speaking about it today, as focused meditation practice. However, forgetting to remember also happens. Does a shift in orientation eventually make unworlding instinctive and effortless? I think I was just answering that one. Uh, I do think we can change our habit. And in terms of unworlding, my experience over many years of practice is that you do develop a momentum of letting go. You know, meditation practice is very difficult at first because you, you know, that practice that we were doing where you're slipping off the glaciers of the known into the unknown, it's, it's very foreign when you first try. In fact, it seemed, I remember starting you know, my first meditation using a meditation book probably 30 years ago or more. And uh, I tried for about five minutes and it seemed so impossible to me that I literally threw the book away and decided that, you know, this was useless. And it wasn't until some years later that I picked up meditation practice in earnest. And then it wasn't really, you know, this is my personal case, so I'm not saying this is always true, but it wasn't, for me, it was really about a decade of pretty serious practice before I started to feel like, wow. Almost as soon as I sit down cross-legged, you know, my there's a body memory of meditation that kind of kicks in a certain relationship of letting go of the mind. And so, yes, I think something can get habitual. At the same time, I think the experience of not knowing is never fully habitual. You know, for me, even today, when I have the chance to meditate more deeply and to sink into that experience of not knowing who I am or where I am or what I'm doing, it always feels like the first time. It always, it it sort of has to feel like the first time because it's the unknown. There's nothing to compare it to. And our memory of that experience is never the experience. So the experience is always completely fresh and new and unknown. So that's why it's so beautiful. That's why it's such a, a great sparkly pearl that we chase. And that you know, even someone like me who's been meditating for so long and has many experiences over time, you know, I still love the opportunity to let go and to be in that ever new, ever present, unknown relationship to reality. And then another one here, it says, what part do emotions play in the process of unworlding and reworlding? I find that embracing the wisdom of this important aspect of our being is left out of teachings. I see it as pivotal to our inner and outer guidance shifting system. How about you? Well, I would agree, and, and I'm sure you would agree with me that it's a subtle matter, the matter of emotion and feeling. Because on the one hand, you know, I see feelings, fundamentally, uh, they're more subtle forms of knowing. You know, thoughts, compared to feelings, thoughts are a little bit clunky. They're specific, 
uh, you know, which is which is nice. There's things you can think and thoughts that are hard to feel, and they're a little easier to communicate. It's it's, it's in some ways easier to communicate specifics in thought than in feeling, but feelings are more subtle. I think they give us access to more subtle forms of knowing. At the same time, feelings come from a lot of different sources. Feelings, not every feeling is trustworthy. And so being able to discriminate between which feelings are giving us useful guidance and which feelings are not worth following is is also important. And ultimately... You know, when I speak about the reworlding process, which is the process of paradigm shifting, you know, if we want to relate this to the process of paradigm shifting, you know, reworlding exercises are us consciously entering into different experiences of the world. As I said earlier, not to adopt one as the new one, but simply to uh, acquaint ourselves with the fact that reality can change. And then a paradigm shift is a reality is a new experience of reality that's going to emerge for all of us, not coming from our ideas, you know, but coming from someplace that we can't imagine. And then we're just more ready for it because we've, we've been engaging in this kind of reworlding experience. But as, the, as a new paradigm arises, there's also a new set of emotional sensibilities that comes with it. And we will be reconfigured. Our nervous systems will become reconfigured to experience in new ways. You know, subtleties, subtleties of feeling will start to arise and we will start to attune to them. And so, yes, feelings and emotions are incredibly important. A whole new set of feelings and emotions will come with a new paradigm and our ability to recognize those and to acclimate to them will be critical and crucial. And at the same time, we need to be always aware of how we are discriminating between those feelings and emotions that are giving us useful and valuable guidance and those which may not be. So that's, that's what I would say about, about the role of feeling and emotion. There are real physical limits when you are working with real physical things. And yet, you can be working within those limits with a very small imagination, in which case not much different happens. Or you can be working with a very large imagination, in which case you find that even within the limits of the physical, there's a lot more possible than most people think. And when you look at the great architects of the world... Uh, you see that they were they they obviously were operating within the same physical limits of as anybody else, and yet they were doing so much more within those limits. One way to look at this is that it really is about extending the range of human imagination. That's why uh, that's what I'm so excited about. That's what I feel like is the heart of the creative process. How much can we imagine is possible? One of the ways that we can expand our imagination is to perhaps expand our perceptions beyond the limits of our physical sensations. You, you know, because we are experiencing the world through a particular physical form, 
even if that particular physical form is not the limit of who we are, it certainly is shaping our experience to a profound degree, especially if we're to the extent that we're identified with it. You know, as we let go of our identification with the physical form, we start to re- we start to feel our perceptual capacities expanding beyond the five senses. But still, we're quite shaped by it. So yes, I think we are developing expanded senses of perception that move beyond you know our physical the limits of our physical perception and that's critical because we're such a powerful species on this planet what we do has such tremendous effect in the delicate balance of life and yet all of the choices that we make tend to come from a human centric viewpoint and now naturally of course we have a human centric viewpoint we we have we're gaining access to reality through a human form so that's that's not a surprise it's not anybody's fault but i think we have the we have the capacity to move beyond that to start to expand into bigger perspectives on reality that will take us beyond an exclusively human point of view so that we can gain wider visions of of reality and of what's possible it's exactly exciting and terrifying at the same time and the reason why we come together on retreat the reason why uh, i'm so interested in in gathering a self-awakening collective of networked individuals is because it helps alleviate the terrifying Uh, it allows us to work together Uh, with that i want to end this broadcast and i want to just tell you that i So appreciate all of the love and support I feel from so many of you all year long. And I am always endeavoring to do everything that I can to support not only your individual awakening, but the gathering of a self-awakening community that we can all be proud of and that we can all uh, relax into. So thank you all so very much. Bye now.